Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, January 26, 2014. The share ID number for Friday, January 24th is 5818. This morning's presentation on A Vision for You, Smashing the Delusion. Step one states, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Unless we humble ourselves by taking this step, we don't need the rest of the program. We must experience our powerlessness so that it becomes the launching pad of desperation to seek and find power. Joining us this morning to help us smash the delusion is Joe, a recovered compulsive overeater from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Joe is dedicated to living the program of recovery, intensively working with other compulsive overeaters, and carrying the message that there is a solution. And it is my pleasure to turn the meeting over to you, Joe. Thank you. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Joe. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I used to weigh 254 pounds. My body mass index was 42. That was 22 points above what is healthy. My midsection moved independently of the rest of my body. I was so overweight. I would look up a flight of stairs and think, how am I going to get up there? I used to work at an organization that had two floors, an upper floor and a lower floor, and I would be on the lower floor, and I would look up all these stairs, and I would grab onto the railing and just as slowly as I could take one step at a time and go up the stairs as slowly as I could with my huge, massive body, and I was still out of breath when I got to the top. I couldn't run when I was in a hurry. Just walking made me out of breath. Forgetting an incline or a decline, just walking across a straight floor made me out of breath. I had to sit or lean anywhere I went because standing was uncomfortable given how much gravity was pulling on me. I binged at night after I got off work. Nighttime was the major binge time for me. I would go to fast food restaurants, convenience stores, grocery stores, movie concession stands, I binged alone in my car in the dark parking lot of convenience stores. I would take the first bite out of a binge food and lurch back in the seat of my car as the sugar rushed to my brain, and I would have what I would call a mini convulsion because of what the sugar was doing to my body. I would go to a large buffet restaurant where you pay one price and then eat all you want. I would pile on really huge amounts, amounts, amounts of food onto those plates, things like meat, potatoes, vegetables, pasta. That would be on one plate. And then I'd have another plate where I'd pile really high with all the salad fixings. And I would eat both plates all the way down. And then I would go get more food that was salty and floury and greasy. And then after that, I would go and get three large servings of different desserts, And even then, when all was said and done, I felt disappointed at leaving that restaurant because the eating was over, and now I had to face my unhappy life. I remember walking out of my bank one time, seeing a candy dispenser, and saying to myself, remember that this is here in case I'm in the neighborhood and I need a fix. 
I was like a drug addict. I remember having a piece of homemade bait good in my hand watching television one night, and I looked at that bait good and I asked myself, what do I have if I don't have this? And the answer was nothing. I have nothing if I don't have this. That was, that was what my life had come to, a piece of baked good in my hand. And speaking of baked goods, baking was a part of my eating life. I would bake a large batch of something, sugar, flour, and fat, often in secret, and then eat the whole thing without sharing it with my housemates. I couldn't concentrate while there was still any of the baked item in the house. It was as if that thing owned me. I couldn't feel relief until all of it was gone. And the relief was quickly replaced by anxiety because now there was no more left. And how was I going to get my next fix? I remember in my 20s coming home from work, eating instant mashed potatoes with cheese and orange juice. And that was the, quote, nutritious food that I was getting in my body, which I wanted to get over with really quickly because then I wanted to get on to my real eating. Because getting that, quote, nutritious food in me then gave me permission to do what I was going to do next, which was to eat one homemade cookie after another, after another, after another. You know, I'd make a big batch, and it would last maybe two days at the most. And I was consumed with devouring all of it. I would go on long bike rides. This was when I wasn't too obese yet to prevent that kind of physical activity. So I'd go on a 16-mile bike ride in the town I was living in at the time. And then afterward on my way home, I would stop at the convenience store and load up on the sugar, flour, crunchy, creamy junk food, go home, make a huge meal, like a large, huge plate of pasta, cheese, tomato sauce, bread and butter, and down all of that. And then when I was done with all that, I would sit in front of the television and eat every morsel of all the junk food I had bought at the convenience store. And it didn't phase me to do this. I was like an eating machine. I experienced hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of food hangovers, but there are three that stand out in my mind. Um, The first one was I was going to go to the movies one night, and of course I was planning on eating the concessions, but I wanted to get a better deal on candy than I would if I bought it at the theater. So I went to a grocery store where they sold it in bulk by weight. I purchased one pound of candy. I went to the movie theater. I bought the large bag of popcorn, ate all of that, plus the one pound of candy, every morsel of it. And I was so hung over by that binge the next day. And I was at work. I went into the bathroom of my employer laid on the floor of the bathroom and just writhed around the floor in misery, hoping I would throw up, but I never did. My employer was paying me to do a job. I was not able to do that job because I was writhing on the floor of the bathroom. The second binge, the second hangover I particularly remember, um, I had had an all-day binge on work vending machine junk food. And at the end of that binge, I knew what punishment awaited me the next day because I, um, I had had enough food hangovers by that point that I anticipated how horrible I was going to feel the next day with the next day's hangover. And so I was not willing to go through that again. So I said to myself, not this time. I am not going to go through that this time. So it was a work day, and while I was still at work, 
I called Walgreens. Do you have syrup of Ipecac? Yes, we do. What time do you close? 10 p.m. Great, thank you. I got off work at 7.30. I went to Walgreens, got the syrup of Ipecac, read the instructions for the dosage, and sitting in my car in a dark parking lot, I drank the syrup of Ipecac. I felt so alone and so demoralized in that moment. I had never induced vomiting before, and this was a new low, and I really felt it. Twenty minutes later, I was puking my guts out. But the next morning, I still had a food hangover. I remember that morning feeling angry and disappointed and surprised that the vomiting of the night before did not prevent that food hangover. I still suffered the next day. The third hangover I remember, I had woken up on a Sunday morning hungover from binging, and I just couldn't get out of bed. I don't even remember the specific binging of the day before. It's a complete blank. I can't tell you where I went or what I ate, how late I stayed up, nothing. It's just a complete blank. My only memory is of that Sunday. I stayed in bed all day. I pulled the television set right up close to my face and watched hour after hour after hour of television, and I just laid there, getting up only to go to the bathroom. I didn't get up to do any real activity until 10 o'clock that night, and that was another new low. My body was becoming less tolerant of what I was doing to it. I was in my 30s, and my system was just not able to take as much punishment anymore. I lost a whole day of life because of this hangover. I simply wasn't able to function. But not this hangover nor any of the others stopped my overeating. The back seat of my car was so filled with cartons, bags, and boxes, I couldn't see the floor of the car. I had periods where I would go for certain favorite combinations of foods to binge on or single types of foods that I would focus on for certain periods of time, like Cheetos and ice cream, Pop-Tarts, Fig Newtons and milk, certain brands of cookies. I remember in college, my eating just exploded from what it had been previously. I would raid the vending machines on campus. I would take full advantage of the all-you-can-eat food plan uh, that I was signed up for. I went to the all-night donut shop in the town. There was a convenience store right next to campus. I would go there for junky, salty, and sugary food. I ordered pizzas from the front desk at the dorm. After college, my eating got still worse. I had a designated binge night on Saturday night. It was Saturday, you know, it was Saturday after I got off work. I got off work at noon. I would go to the grocery store. I would load up on all my junk. I would take it home. I would sleep for a few hours because I had been up since 5 that morning. Then I would wake up, you know, at about 4 or 5 in the afternoon, and I'd proceed to eat for the next several hours in front of the television. That was my designated binge night. Of course, later, every night was a binge night. Uh, I remember um, after college, my first job, stopping to get um, a, a piece of sugary thing uh, right after work, um, and that was a nightly ritual. Um, I drove around town in the town I was living with at the time in search of fast food joints that were open. These were during the days where we didn't have the 24-hour um, you know, stores open like we do now. Uh, places actually closed down at 10 p.m. Well, for a compulsive overeater and nighttime binger like me, that was a very serious problem. So I had to, I had to get my tail out to my car and drive around and make sure I got my fix before the stores closed. Uh, in high school, 
Uh, I ate uh, sugary, floury foods in bathroom stalls. I had to get a fix in a bathroom stall before my first class started so I could feel like I could function during the day. In high school, I stole food from my babysitting clients, and it was always the junky, sugary, floury, salty foods. I ate late at night after my whole family had gone to bed, and that was that was quite an effort, I must tell you. I come from a family of six people, so five other people had to be in bed before I could, you know, really do my 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 binge eating. Um, I would stop for sugar at the convenience store after school. Uh, I always purchased the candy they sold for fundraisers when I was in high school, and I don't remember if I stole it or if I bought it. But I took many boxes of candy that my sister had stored under her bed for the fundraiser she was participating in in high school. I remember that day. It was over. It was like 35 years ago. I still remember that day. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was laying on top of her bed reading a book, and I just kept reaching under, getting one box and eating it, and then reaching again and getting another box and eating it, and then reaching under again and getting another box and eating it. I would eat. Uh, into bags and boxes meant for the family, then lie about it to avoid getting in trouble. I would slice sliver after sliver off of other people's leftover birthday cakes, trying not to get caught while desperately shoving in the sugar, flour, and fat. I shoplifted food. It's the only thing I ever shoplifted, and I did this when I was in high school. Uh, I shoplifted a lot, and I can tell you the places. Walgreens, Super America, Corner Plaza Shopping Center, Woolworths, Lunds and Byerly's Grocery Store, Kmart, smaller supermarkets in my town, Kinsmore Drugstore that was a few blocks from where I lived. I stole candy, sweetbreads, donuts, cookies, granola bars, etc. I mean, all, it was just the junky food. I had to get my fix, and if I didn't have the money, I was going to get my fix anyway. Mr. Donuts Donut Shop that was right up the street from where we lived. I'd stop off there on my, on my way to or from Southdale Shopping Center. Uh, also in high school, I had an eating buddy, and it was, you know, I mean, at the time, I would say in quotes, it was fun, but we were both binging. We were enabling each other to binge on these, you know, large quantities of sugar and flour and fat. We were both on the cross-country running team, and we would say, we've got to stoke up on our carbs, you know, wink, wink, and we would go out and we'd, we'd binge um, on sugar and flour the night before our races, and then we'd laugh about it. Um by the time I was in high school, food had been a problem for me for almost 10 years, and it was taking a more aggressive hold on me, which would only get worse. Food for me is not about nutrition. It is not about celebration. It is not about reward. It is not about socialization. It is not about recreation. For me, food is about getting high. It takes the edge off. It calms me down. It medicates and soothes. Food is about changing my mood. As you can probably tell from my story, I have an extremely serious condition. Something is profoundly wrong. The disturbance in me is severe and I can do nothing about it. The big book says over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. And that's true for me. I think about the kind of eating I was doing in grade school. I was basically overeating at meals only. Well, by the end of my eating, you know, eating and overeating had encroached every moment of my life. The big book says we have tried every imaginable remedy. I tried a lot of remedies. I wasn't happy with what I was doing. I tried to put boundaries around my food. 
I did go on diets. I went on many diets. Um, some of these diets were prescribed. You know, they might have been, you know, prescribed by somebody else. And some of the diets I came up with on my own, but I went on many diets. Um, I went uh, to paid weight loss programs. I tried two of those as a teenager. I was 15 years old when I went to my first paid weight loss program. I mean, I knew I had a problem. When I was in my 20s, I went to an outpatient eating disorders clinic. And, you know, when I was in the paid weight loss programs, I thought, well, these people must know what they're talking about. They're professionals. They've got this professional plan of eating that they're following. They have success stories, and they parade their success stories in front of the room, etc. They must know what they're doing. But it didn't work for me. And when I went to the eating disorders clinic, I thought, okay, maybe I found the solution now. Because of the eating disorders clinic, I met with a nutritionist, and she talked to me about portion sizes. And then I met with a psychologist, and she gave me these sheets, and she said, fill these sheets out. When you're eating, write down where you are and how you feel. And so I did that. I'm like, okay, I'm keeping a record. Where am I eating and how do I feel? Well, okay, well, this is an eating disorders clinic. These people are professionals. They're trying to take a more holistic approach. They must know what they're talking about. And maybe they did know what they were talking about. But but that method did not work for me. Controlled eating. I mean, I discovered controlled eating when I was 19. I went to my – I used the first approach in controlled eating when I was 19 years old which was, okay, I'm going to eat three meals a day. It's going to be nutritious food. I'm not going to eat any snacks in between. I'm not going to let myself even have a little bit of something, and I'm going to follow this until I get all my weight off. So this was not a, this was not a diet imposed from the outside. It wasn't anything I found in a magazine. It was just my applying my best efforts at portion control uh, and nutrition. And I didn't even tell, I didn't tell anybody else what I was doing. I was just doing it. And I was in college at the time, and I lost 20 pounds, and I got all the way down to a normal body weight. Well, within a year, I was back up heavier than ever. And I tried that that method of controlled eating. I tried that many, many times because I thought I had hit on something because I thought, okay, up to this point, other people have wanted me to lose weight. Now I want to do it. I'm doing it for myself. So I thought, well, hey, I must have hit on something. But it didn't work for me. I tried the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. I went to meetings. I was a very faithful meeting attender. I usually was going to two meetings a week, and I was very faithful at even traveling around the Twin Cities, going to lots of different meetings, different days of the week, different times of the day, so that I would have a full collection of options for my meetings. And that was probably the most active thing I was doing, was going to meetings. Um, I did work with a sponsor on and off, you know, so if I wanted to work with a sponsor, I would, and if I didn't want to, I didn't. Um, I even tried sponsoring myself for a little bit, put my toe in the water, tried sponsoring a little bit. I would go to special OA events, conventions, workshops, etc. So I tried the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. And again, with these methods, I would lose weight, um, but I could never keep it off. I was never at peace with food, and I I did not know at that time that 
I was not at peace with food because I was not at peace with myself and I didn't really know the exact nature of my condition. Then something happened. I was introduced to the program of recovery by a woman who moved to the Twin Cities where I live and she brought the message of recovery with her. And I had been through so much pain with my eating and I had been through enough disappointment and failure in OA that when I heard this message of recovery, I was able to listen. I was willing to listen. The message was very attractive to me. It was a message of hope. It was a message of strength. It was a message of power. It was a message that said, not only can you put the food down and not obsess about food anymore, you will have a transformed life inside and outside. And I believed her. I have experienced this transformation myself. I am a different person now than I was before I entered the program of recovery. I am a better person now. I used to weigh 254 pounds. I now weigh about 130 pounds. I'm 5'4 and a half, so if you saw me walking down the street, you would never guess in a million years that I was a compulsive overeater. And I tell you that because most of you have never seen me, and I want you to know what I look like physically. I want you to know my stats so that you can know that this program works. Uh, I do not obsess about food today. I eat in safety. I have much more intellectual strength than at any time in my life, and I apply that strength. My mental absorption is much better. My concentration is higher. I'm more productive. I'm more responsive, and I'm more responsible. I'm less reactive today. Things don't bother me like they used to. I don't wake up with food hangovers anymore. Morning is my favorite time of the day now. When I'm in social situations, I can focus on the people much better. I don't focus on the food. Yesterday, I went to a movie with some friends, and afterward, we went out, and I was able to be in the conversation about the film. And, it, and I just had some bottled water because it wasn't my eating time yet. I no longer fantasize about what I'm going to eat when I get off work. I no longer have to go digging around in my purse to make sure I have enough money for a binge. I don't have to sit at work thinking, you know, the vending machine is right around the corner. How can I get to that vending machine and get back to my desk without anybody seeing me? I don't have to do that today. I no longer have to rush to get to the movie theater to allow enough time to wait in line for the concessions before the movie starts. I have a job that I love. I'm good at what I do, and I make a real contribution to my employer. Life is more meaningful today. I have hope in my life today. I'm a good person and I make valuable contributions in the world. This transformation has come about because of the decision I made to engage the program of recovery found in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Big Book contains steps that are designed to affect a complete change in my thinking. In order for me to have been able and willing to make that decision, I had to get to a place where I was beyond the help of anything else I had tried before. I needed to be willing to let go completely of all of those methods. I had to be at the place where I admitted that I was defeated and defeated forever by this condition called compulsive overeating. This brings me to the heart of my talk this morning. The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves 
that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. I have had to compare myself to normal eaters. I have had to contrast what I do with what they do. And honestly, we have nothing in common when it comes to eating. They can have just one. I cannot. They can push themselves away from the table. I cannot. They can make spontaneous decisions about food. I cannot. They can eat special foods on special occasions. I cannot. They can eat in a special way when they go on vacation. I cannot. They can eat in a special way on the weekends. I cannot. They can eat in a special way on birthdays, holidays, graduations, weddings, funerals. I cannot. They can enjoy a treat at work. I cannot. And I could list a myriad of ways that I am different from a normal eater. But the things that make me truly different from a normal eater are these. One, I have an allergy of the body. And two, I have an obsession of the mind. So I'm going to take these one at a time. I have a physical condition that sets me up to crave certain foods. This is a physical craving. Sugar, flour, salt, fat, and volume of any type of food. Because I have conceded to my innermost self that I have an allergy of the body to these triggers, here is what I do with food to smash the delusion regarding the allergy of the body. I abstain from any and all foods where sugar is fifth or beyond on the ingredients label. Um, I'm sorry, where sugar is in the first four ingredients on the ingredients label. I abstain from any and all flour products and flourless products. You know, food companies will make flourless bread, flourless crackers. I don't have those either. I abstain from any and all foods with high sodium content. That's food that has a lot of salt in it. I abstain from uh, any and all foods that are fatty, foods that have a high volume of uh, like the saturated fats. And I abstain from any and all excess volume of food. The doctor's opinion in the big book says the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Is entire abstinence. I am entirely abstinent because the delusion that I am like other people or presently may be in a physical sense has been smashed. I know today that the way I eat must be different from the way a normal eater eats because I am not a normal eater. I am a compulsive overeater, and I am in a certain class of people. I am in a group set apart. It's a different identity than someone who's a normal eater. My food is like prescription medication, and that's how I treat it. I eat certain types of food in certain amounts at certain times. I don't tamper with the dosage. My food fuels my body. It no longer gets me high. My body is on an even keel. The allergy of the body is not being triggered. I no longer have physical cravings. When someone offers me a treat at work, I say, no, thank you. When someone offers me a sample at the grocery store, I say, no, thank you. When someone offers me a bite of their own food, I say, no, thank you. I skip the concession stand at the movies. If someone gives me a gift of food because they don't know what I do, I say, thank you, and then I find someone else to give it to. I pack my own lunch every day. If I'm going to be away from home for dinner, I pack my dinner and bring it with me. I do my grocery shopping once a week, 
and haul in the food I plan to eat for the whole week. I don't have the luxury of stopping by a deli or a fast food joint or a sandwich shop or a restaurant for my meals. They don't serve what I need. I need prescription medication, and they don't serve that. They serve entertaining food, recreational food, celebratory food that's full of the ingredients that will trigger my allergy of the body. So instead, I depend on my self-selected groceries from the grocery store because grocery stores do sell what I need. They do sell my prescription medication, my abstinent foods that are low on the food chain and for the most part not processed. I read the ingredient labels on cans and packages. I'm looking like a detective for anything that could trigger me. A couple weeks ago, I was searching for some vegetable broth. I looked at seven different brands before I found one that was safe. And that's what this is about for me, the desire to eat in safety, the desire to eat free of the physical craving. Before I had that desire, though, the delusion that I was like others had to be smashed. I had come face-to-face and had to come face-to-face with the cold, hard reality of who I was physically. The doctor's opinion in the big book says the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. I am unable to safely use any of my trigger foods in any form at all because it sets up a reaction in my body that chains me to eat more and more and more and more. And this phenomenon never happens in the average temperate eater. Normal eaters don't get high off of food. They don't use it like a drug. I do. I'm different bodily than they are. And therefore, I follow a prescribed plan of eating that protects me from those physical cravings. Now, I have a second problem, the obsession of the mind. Even when I'm abstaining from my trigger foods, I will obsess about them. I will fantasize about them. I will stare at them and imagine myself eating them. I'm on edge. I'm impatient. I'm irritable. I'm tense. I'm angry. I feel like I'm going to jump out of my skin. I have to take the edge off, and the only way I know how to take the edge off is to eat. So I go back to those foods that trigger me. I'm shot into oblivion where I feel the drug effect. It takes the edge off, but then I can't stop, and there's no off switch. So my real problem is the obsession of the mind. It's what goes on inside me when I'm not overeating. That's the real heart of the issue. The chapter more about alcoholism does a beautiful job laying out the nature of powerlessness, and it is the principles in this chapter that have allowed me to be launched into the program of recovery because only in admitting complete defeat am I now ready for what the program really has to offer. On page 30 of the big book in the chapter more about alcoholism, it says, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Does that tell my story? You bet it does. I identify with it because I did all that many, 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 many times. How many times did I wake up with 
you know, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. How many times did I go back to that food over and over and over again, despite what it was doing to me? This chapter has examples of how alcoholics go back to the booze, even though they know how destructive it is. And it talks about how alcoholics don't want to believe they are in a class of their own and that they continue to experiment with controlled drinking, trying desperately to manage their consumption of alcohol. Well, that was me. You know, I did that too. I didn't want to believe I was in a separate class. I wanted to believe I could control my eating. I tried many, many methods to control my eating, and they all failed. So this chapter expands on and fully describes the condition of the alcoholic that involves this mental fixation that won't go away, my mental obsession that won't go away. I came to Overeaters Anonymous because I was seeking something other than a diet. By the time I came to OA, I knew that I needed something beyond a diet. I didn't know what that was, but I knew that diets would no longer do the trick for me. On page 34 in More About Alcoholism, the program of recovery is touched on with these words. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. And on page 35 it says, we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. The crux of the problem. My mental state preceding my relapse into eating is the core of the problem, the heart of the problem. So now I'm starting to identify that I really don't just have an eating problem. I have a mental problem. The chapter asks, what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? I have a type of thinking that dominates me, and I repeated time after time the desperate experiment of the first bite. This thinking will take me over and own me no matter how long I've been away from my trigger foods. Chronological length of abstinence means nothing. It has no effect on the obsession of the mind. This is the second layer of smashing that delusion. It is accepting that my obsession of the mind will never be solved by me alone. It will never be solved by me trying to think my way out of it. It won't be solved by fantasizing, by wishful thinking, by applying therapy, by reading books, by shaming myself, by feeling regret, by applying knowledge of nutrition, by applying self-knowledge. On page 39 in More About Alcoholism, it says, but the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. I had self-knowledge. It did nothing for me. I knew about myself psychologically because I had been in therapy. I knew about myself intellectually because of the intellectual background that I came from. I knew about my sexual orientation. I had come out to myself as a lesbian. That was self-knowledge. These things had no effect on my obsession of the mind. I had good days. I obsessed on those days as well as the bad days. I lost weight down to a normal body size. I stayed away from my trigger foods for a certain amount of time, but 
the mental obsession always was there, sometimes in a small amount, sometimes in a severe amount. It just never went away. So to experience the delusion being smashed in this regard, in regard to the mental obsession, I am going to have to take some specific actions if I really and truly believe that I have no power over this obsession of the mind. The end of the chapter, more about alcoholism, states, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. So when I had my delusion smashed in this regard, in the matter of my mental obsession, I began to engage the program of recovery. And I took a lot of actions, and I continue to take a lot of actions, so that I can be recovered from compulsive overeating in my mind, not just in my body. I did come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I had to believe something greater than me could help me because I had let go of the delusion that I had any power myself over my condition and that any attempt on my part to exert even a little bit of control was going to completely fail me. I did make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of a power greater than myself because the admission that I was defeated forced me into making this decision. There was no other decision to make given my acceptance of my mental condition. If I don't have the power, and I believe that there is a power that can deliver me from this, then what is my choice except to give myself over to that power? I did take a personal inventory, and it was fearless and it was thorough because I had been confronted with the reality that my mental obsession was spurred by severe internal turmoil, and that if I wanted freedom from the mental obsession, I had to get free of this internal turmoil. I did give away this inventory to a sponsor, because part of my acceptance of my condition was that I could no longer keep secrets. I did become entirely ready, and I did ask for the unsavory characteristics in me to be removed, because my admission of defeat included that I cannot take away these qualities by myself and that these characteristics will not go away through any power of my own. I did make a list of the people I had harmed through acting out my self-will, and I did make amends to those people, because I admitted that only in repairing the damage could I get free of the guilt, the remorse, and the shame I felt after becoming conscious of these things in the inventory process and accepting that repairing this damage was a requirement for my mental freedom. I did and I do continue to take inventory to watch for new resentments and new fears so that they don't balloon into something that returns me to mental chaos. I do seek to improve my conscious contact with this power greater than myself because I accept today that I am not cured of the mental obsession. I have what the big book calls a daily reprieve, contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. I do carry this message to compulsive overeaters, and I do practice these principles in my life, because having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, 
I am now required to carry the message to others, and I am now required to practice these principles in all of my affairs in order to continue the experience of being a recovered compulsive overeater free of the mental obsession. And so the delusion that I am like a normal eater or presently may be has been smashed and continues to be smashed every day. Normal eaters don't have to do what I do to have their peace of mind. They may have to do other things to have their peace of mind, but they don't have to concede to their innermost selves that food is a drug for them, and they don't have to do these 12 steps contained in a book called The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous to alleviate them of an obsession of the mind. I have no choice today if I want to be free. I have no choice but to accept my allergy of the body and my obsession of the mind and to take the necessary actions of this program of recovery to have a life worth living. When I was deluded and thinking I could be like a normal eater, there was no freedom in that because I kept acting like a normal eater, controlling my food and rejecting a spiritual solution. But when I became ready to have that delusion disrupted and smashed into smithereens, that's when my freedom began. This has not been a comfortable process. It has not been a fast process. It has not been easy. But it has been a simple process that has produced results I could never have imagined in my wildest dreams. I am not the same person I was when I came to Overeaters Anonymous. I am a different and better person today. This program of recovery has restored to me those things the addiction had taken. My health, my self-esteem, my hope, my sanity, my sense of purpose. But a price had to be paid, and it continues to have to be paid, and this is part of my delusion being smashed, is that I accept the program of recovery as a requirement of my life, not an option. It is not something over on the side. It is the center of my life and will remain the center of my life so long as I want to be free. Thank you for listening, and I'll pass. Joe, thank you so much for your very potent message of recovery this morning and your presentation on smashing the delusion. We thank you very much. We now open the floor for questions related to our topic this morning, Smashing the Delusion. If you press star one, you can direct your question to our speaker, Joe, this morning. Question. Yes. This is Mary Lee in California, and I would like to know what her daily practices, um, more towards the spiritual leaning, which then um, creates the um, physical absence. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Lee. Mary Lee, can you um, expound on your question? I'm not exactly sure what you're asking. Do you have a, a daily routine um, starting in the morning? Um, for example, I say thank you. Um, that's how I start, and then I go into the rest of what I do. Um, because I know your story is just awesome. And, in fact, it, it made me nauseated, you know, to, to hear the first part. 
and yet I know that without some sort of spiritual connection, um, I never would have gotten past that nausea, and I just um, want to know if you have a certain routine and, you know, if you have a sponsor and if you use... Does that make it any clearer? Yes. I call a recovered sponsor every day, and I commit my food to her because I can't afford secrets with my food. So my food is planned and it's committed. I sponsor others. So someone calls me also in the morning, and I am constantly engaging. In the morning, I'm engaging step 11. Step 11 says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I was very influenced by a person in recovery who demonstrated that recovery is actually very, very active. And so my, my life is very active. My mind is very active. So when I get up, my, my alarm goes off at 6, and i got to get up right away. I really can't lolly around in bed because my morning routine is very structured. I have a very structured routine in the morning because recovery demands that of me. So uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready for work, and I'm taking my calls, and I'm making my calls, and I'm feeding my cats, and I'm making my abstinent breakfast, and I'm getting everything together so, I, so that I can get to work and be of service there. And I am remembering, you know, one of the things that I do is, you know, I, I think about, and the big book says, we consider our plans for the day. That's part of step 11. So I'm thinking about what are my plans for the day? Not just what are my external plans, like where do I have to be, but what is my attitude going to be? How am I going to go into this day mentally? I remember to practice gratitudes. Right now, I live in the north, and we're, we're having very severe winter weather. I'm practicing gratitude. I'm grateful for the space here in my bedroom. I'm grateful for my warm apartment. I'm grateful for the heater in my car. I'm grateful for warm clothes. I'm grateful that I'm healthy. I'm grateful that I'm mobile. You know, I, yes, I go out and I walk five blocks to the bus stop in cold weather, and I'm grateful that, that I can do that because I can walk. I'm mobile. Um, so that's just a quick snapshot uh, of my morning routine. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Mary Lee. And who's next? Questions for Joe? This is Liz from New Hampshire. Go ahead, Liz. Go ahead. Joe, thank you very much. And you maybe just think that this program works if you work the steps. Uh, and, and I have no choice, as, as you obviously didn't. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, it makes it very clear in the big book that, um, uh, you know, once you have put down the food or once you put down the alcohol, you can commence immediately to begin the steps. And um, what I found in OA, and which distresses me a great deal because I spent two years in, in OA recently uh, not getting abstinent and not being uh, approached to the steps, and by the grace of God, I found vision for you, and I'm now in the midst of step four and abstinent. There seems to be an understanding that you have to be abstinent for either a period of several weeks or even several months before you can start the steps. And I wanted to get your your take on that because that is clearly not what it the understanding is in uh, in the big book. Yes, and that's not been my experience either. I didn't experience having to be abstinent for several weeks or several months. I mean, you know, getting abstinent and completely, you know, the, the doctor opinion says entire abstinence. So we get entirely abstinent, we've got to start, we've got to go into that step work immediately. We don't have the luxury of waiting. 
Because if all you're going to do is be absent for several weeks or several months, that's just a diet in fancy clothing. It's got to happen immediately. I have a very severe, very fast, lightning speed, actually, type of addiction. And it wants to come at me with full force and take me over again as fast as possible. So we need to use speed in this program. You know, we, we need to use um, a fast, a thorough, an effective process, but also a relatively quick process because that's the nature of our addiction. And, you know, there can be lots of different opinions and philosophies floating around in Overeaters Anonymous. They mean nothing to me. I don't really want to hear about someone's philosophy of how, how they think they have to be abstinent for several weeks or several months before they work the steps. What I want to hear is what their experience is. And what I'd like to know is, you know, who has the experience of having squeaky clean, super wonderful abstinence for several weeks or several months without doing the steps? I haven't met anybody who fits the bill there. So, you know, we talk about, we are supposed to talk about our experience, strength, and hope. Not our opinions, not our philosophies. So the opinions and philosophies that, you know, get spread around in a way, I mean, they have, they have no meaning to me. If someone wants to promote that method, what I want to know is, is that the method that they used and did it work for them? And if it didn't work for them, then there's your answer. That never worked for me. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Liz. Who's next? Hi, I'm from New York. I heard several people, but I couldn't make out names. Let's try again. Ellen from New York. Ellen? Is that correct? Carolyn. Carolyn, Sippy, let's start with that. Go ahead, Carolyn. Hi, I'm Carolyn uh, from New York, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. And I wanted to talk to you about, um, you know, they they talk about how a a man's mind must be thoroughly cleared of alcohol before he can be approached. Um, I had a sponsee who recently picked up, and she wanted to know, do I have to start over again at, at step one? And in the past, that's always been what I've heard, you know, oh, if you're in the food, you're a step zero, you know, all the way back. And that's very discouraging. I think um, it certainly was for me when I did that over and over again for 10 years. And um, my instinct and what I told her, and I want to, you know, kind of check that with another recovered person, is you have to, you know, stop working the steps for a couple of days, like literally two or three days, what I've heard from vision people, just enough to get that sugar out of your system. And then let's start again where you were. And in the meantime, let's focus on, um, you know, the, the, the mental twist. What was going on that made you pick up after, you know, many weeks of, of really clean abstinence and really working the steps hard? You know, what was it that right before you picked up, you know, that, that click that said, it's okay this once or, you know, um, it, you know it'll be different this time? So that, that's my question. Well, if someone picks up the food, it means they have not done a thorough step one. So, yeah, they do have to go back to step one because they didn't, they didn't do it thoroughly the first time. Because if they had done a thorough step one in the first place, they would never have picked up the food again. Okay. Yeah. So that's what I do. That's what I do with a sponsee. So when you say you go back to step one, are you starting at the doctor's opinion again, working through the big book, or? Yeah, the, the doctor's opinion and more about alcoholism. Because there's still, there's still, if someone picks up the food, it means there's some vestige 
of them trying to control the situation. They are trying to control their condition. They are allowing themselves to use, you know, self-will to, to manage it. So they have not, it has not really sunk in deep, 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 deep down to their bones how very powerless they actually are. Okay. Yeah, they do need to go back into the doctor's opinion and more about alcoholism. Okay. One last question. There's, there's a, a book that um, I've only heard a couple of people in Vision use called A Good First Step. It is not a, an OA-approved uh, you know, workbook. Um, I think it's Hazelton. I'm not sure. But it is a super, it's, it's a pretty thick book. It would take, you know, at least two weeks, maybe three, to get through it thoroughly. I actually started it with my first, first vision sponsor, and I didn't think it made sense to be spending so much time on step one. Are you familiar with that book, and do you recommend it? I am not familiar with that book, and for purposes of the program of recovery, I do not uh, recommend any books within the fellowship that are not conference approved. Okay. Conference-approved literature, I stick with the big book. I mean, the big book really is the book for me that has the instructions for how to recover. Other literature may be supplemental to that, and someone may be interested in reading a book, you know, put out by Hazelden, and they want to read that on their own time. Of course, that's their prerogative. But I don't work with sponsees, and when I am communicating the message of recovery, I, I don't invoke... Um, literature, especially literature that is not produced by Overeaters Anonymous. Okay. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Carolyn, for the question. Now, Sippy, it's your turn. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Good morning. Thank you, everyone, for your service. Um, my question is, it's a little connected to the last question, um, a sponsee of mine that keeps binging if she has one day of abstinence, should I go straight into the big book with her? And then if she has another binge again, I should just start over again? Like, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Well, what I do, if someone is, like, repeatedly going into the food like that, um, and, and if let's say they've been in the food a number of times and, and I'm just starting to work with them, I really take a look at their food plan. Because my... Uh, experience is that when someone is doing what your sponsee is doing, she doesn't have a, chances are, not a guarantee, but chances are, she doesn't have a clean food plan to begin with. Chances are there's some kind of trigger inside of her food plan. So I would work with her to look for that. Um, When I first work with a sponsee, we go through her food plan like a fine-tooth comb. We don't rush through it. We are very thorough. Every single solitary item on her food plan is discussed. It is run through a filter, and that filter has to be, you know, food sobriety. And if it doesn't pass the smell test, it doesn't go through the filter, and it's off the food plan. And I go down to the very, very, I go down real granular with sponsees. I mean, I tell my sponsees, you know, you need to commit your flavorings. If you're going to put some kind of seasoning in your food, you have to commit that. And you have to know the quantity. There is no such thing. For me, you know, I'm not not keeping secrets and there's not going to be guesswork about when you're going to eat, how much you're going to eat, you know, et et cetera. So I would say, and and I think this is a, I think this can be um, an oversight within the broader fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous 
It can be an oversight, these food plans. Sometimes we, I think in the broader fellowship, we do not give the sponsee's food plan enough attention. Um, because we have a twofold problem. We don't just have a spiritual malady. We, in fact, do have an allergy of the body. And the allergy of the body has to be addressed before, like the big book says, you know, before um, other methods can be of maximum benefit. So if I were you, I would take a session on the phone with her and go through line by line, what is she eating? And if she's trying to justify certain kinds of foods, you know, she's trying to justify having certain foods on her food plan, that's an issue because the food plan is not there to give us justifications. The food plan is there to give us freedom from the allergy of the body. So that's the approach that I would recommend that you take with her. And if I've taken that approach and she still goes back, what do I, I say goodbye? Like what is that? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think for her, she may not, if she is if she's following a squeaky clean food plan. Are you saying she's following a squeaky clean food plan and she's still going back into the food? I, 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 I don't really. She doesn't really get like a day of abstinence, and I keep wondering. Maybe I do have to start the steps first, and I, I never got to that point, but. Let's say I give an example like it's so like her allergic food is so strong and appealing to her. I asked her not to go to that section of the store. I even asked her not to go shopping for food for a while like her mother can do the shopping. But she just has this, you know, she needs that food and she keeps going back to it. And for other people, it's a abstinent food. Well, the, the question is, is not, is it abstinent for other people? The question is, is it abstinent for her? So Please. you need to be, as her sponsor, well, she needs yes. to be clear, but also you need to be clear what the issue is. Either the issue is she's ingesting her trigger foods and it's, it's, it's uh, triggering the craving and she's, she's going into the food because she's being triggered with a craving, in which case she, she, she has to clean up her food plan. Or if she's following a squeaky clean food plan and she's not ingesting foods that trigger her, and then she's going back into the food. Now you know what the issue is, which is the obsession of the mind, which is the step work. So you need clarity. You, she needs that clarity, but you need that clarity. But the other thing is that she either wants the program or she doesn't. She either wants what you have or she doesn't. She's either decided to do the program of recovery or she has not. And you cannot make her make that decision. She has to make that decision. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you need to, you need to make a decision if sponsoring this person is good for your recovery. Because if she has not decided that she wants what you have, it's not helpful to your recovery to sponsor her. You need someone who, the big book says, um, you know, do not work with someone longer than, you know, than is, you know, than is helpful. You know, seek out another compulsive reader. You are sure to find someone who will accept with eagerness what you have to offer. That's in the chapter of working with others. Who will accept with eagerness. Because for your recovery, you need to sponsor someone who is eager, who is desperate, who is hungry for this, who, who is just, you know, on edge and super, super willing. That's what you need for your, you know, sponsoring experience. That's, that's part of what you need for your recovery. Thank you. You really answered my question. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
Thank you, Tippy, for the question. And who's next? Question I, for Joe related Joe. to smashing the delusion. This is Jason. I have a question too. Uh, I heard Jason and I heard Devorelea first, I believe. So Devorelea, questions related to what was spoken about this morning. Go ahead. Uh, okay, I I don't talk like other people. I have my own ideas, so maybe I. It's I don't know if it's related or not, but you said something about it being mental. So I want to know if I uh, well I I've been very abstinent at times, but I didn't necessarily do step work. If I really got abstinent and really did step work and really did the whole nine yards, would that alleviate? Uh, my mental illness, which is bipolar and ADHD. Because that's not what the steps are for. The steps are not to alleviate mental conditions that are not related to compulsive overeating. I imagine that you may need other kinds of professional help for those conditions. The 12 steps do not make that promise. You know, the, the promise of the 12 steps is that we will be alleviated of the mental obsession for food. It doesn't say it's going to alleviate us of other kinds of conditions. And a lot of us have to use outside help for other conditions that we have. For me, seeking outside help is part of step 11. That is actually an extension of my step work. Because I have to admit that, you know, the 12 steps alleviate me of the spiritual malady. And in being alleviated of that, I am more willing now to go and seek outside help for things that maybe I wasn't willing to seek outside help for before. So honestly, everything I do in my life is related to my step work. I hope that makes sense. Thank you, Thank you, Devorah Leah, for the question. And now, Jason, your turn. Uh, Hello, everybody. This is Jason, compulsive overeater from Vermont, and I'm really grateful to hear your talk, Joe. Jason, we lost you there. Excuse me, this is Jackie from West Virginia. Jackie, Hi. hold on. Yeah, Jason, we're you're back in action. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Did you hear anything that I said? You just introduced yourself, and then we lost you. Oh, okay. So this is uh, Jason, compulsive reader from Vermont, and um, thank you for your talk, Joe. I really appreciate it. When you're just sharing a minute ago about how you go over your food plan, kind of line by line, with your sponsees. Um, that, you know, I've been in this program for, you know, kind of on and off since last year. I was working with a sponsor for about six weeks last year, and um, and he was doing that with me. But basically what he did is, is he told me, you know, he, he sent me a food plan, and he said, this is the way you have to do it. And, and you know, I, I, I sat down, I you know, every morning we talked on the phone and we went over line by line what I was going to eat. And after six weeks, you know, I, I know that he was really well-intentioned, but, but that approach just didn't work for me. Um, you know, after six weeks, I, I, I fell off the food plan. It was just too much for my system to take all at once. And, um, and I, I ended up, you know, falling right back into all my binge eating and and I gained 50 pounds last year after I stopped working with him and it was like the biggest weight gain of my entire life Mm -hmm. and um, so when I was hearing you now I've been 
you know, I, I guess I'm working the program in another, I'm working the steps in another program with a sponsor right now. Um, but, you know, I've been abstinent from, from sugar and compulsive overeating since January 5th of this year, which is like huge for me. I'm like, wow, I'm almost three weeks now. And, um, actually I, I think that is three weeks today. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was hearing you share about, you know, going over line by line, I was just curious, you know, I, I know since then, you know, since working with this sponsor, I learned that, um, you know, it's actually not the recommendation of the program to give somebody a food plan. And I was just curious, it almost sounded like you were giving people a food plan by using this approach and I'm I'm just I'm confused by that and I'm just hoping that you could clarify that because for me I know like sugar is definitely an addictive food I've let go of that and you know I'm I'm working on letting go I I don't know if I need to let go of flour or not I figured I'll just deal with sugar first see how that goes and it's going really well I've lost almost 20 pounds in 3 weeks which is un unbelievable um but I I guess I'm just hoping that you could help to clarify this, you know, is it possible to gradually let go of foods that might be binge foods? I feel like I've been eating really healthy, and um, thank you, Jason, for the question. Thanks. Thank you. Well, a couple of things, Jason. First of all, I'm not promoting a food plan. Um, what I am saying is that I have to be entirely abstinent in order to arrest the allergy of the body. That's my experience. An entire abstinence means I, I cannot afford to indulge any of my trigger foods ever at any time. It took me a while to get to the point where I was able to surrender at this level, but now I've surrendered at this level, and my food plan is airtight, and I don't play games with it. I don't distribute a food plan to sponsees. What I do do is I help them understand the difference between abstinence and not abstinence. Some of us uh, seek out healthcare professionals to help advise us on the nutritional component of a food plan. I mean, that's what I do. Um, and my sponsees do that as well. I, and I don't care which nutritionist they go to, but they do have to go to somebody because I'm not a nutritionist. I, I can't tell someone that they're supposed to have three, you know, three ounces of protein and two servings of vegetables at lunch. I'm not qualified to do that. What I am qualified to do is when someone commits their food to me and they say, well, I'm going to have a salad. I'm qualified to say, what is, what's the ingredients in your salad and how much are you having? I'm qualified to ask that question because that's what I do. Because containing the amount and type of food at a meal is part of our abstinence. Um, so that I, I want to answer that, that question. Um, recovery does not mean um, believing that I have to follow someone else's food plan or that someone has to follow mine. But we need to be honest about our allergy of the body. And that is my job as a sponsor. It's my job to help a sponsee be honest about what she is putting into her body. 
And I would be remiss as a sponsor if I did not do that. And in fact, it is a requirement of my recovery to work step 12 to carry this message to other compulsive overeaters. And it is part and parcel of my responsibility to tell my sponsees that is not, that is not an abstinent way that you are eating. It's, it's, it's not, you know, and, and if she commits a certain kind of food, and I have a question about that, that's not me controlling her. That's not me trying to force a food plan down her throat. That's me asking a question that is part of our sponsor-sponsee agreement that I ask. She's counting on me to ask those questions. I'm not here to enable non-abstinent eating. I am not here to put my stamp of approval on whatever food plan somebody comes up with because they think it's a good idea. That's not my job. And I've lost plenty of sponsees because they don't want to become entirely abstinent. It's not about they think I'm trying to force a food plan down their throat. It's because they're not ready to become entirely abstinent. And I've seen plenty of people leave this program because they're not ready to become entirely abstinent. They don't like that message. They get resentful. They leave. They go back into the food, and then they come back, newly surrendered, and then they're appreciative of these kinds of questions. They are grateful for this kind of direction and leadership and guidance. And I have the authority... Well, authority is probably not a good word, but I have, well, maybe I want to say the natural authority. It's not authority that comes from like being a police officer, but it's more authority because I'm doing this myself. It's the authority that comes from anything I ask a sponsee, I'm asking of myself. Any direction and guidance I give a sponsee, I'm also doing. When I ask her what's in that salad, I'm asking, I have to write down myself what's in my salad. I'm giving that away to my sponsor. So I'm not talking down to a sponsee. This is not an issue of control and power. This is an issue of me needing to communicate the message of recovery. So um, that would be my, my answer to that. And Jason, I want to very positively um, encourage you to reconsider the language that you're using. Because I heard you say some things. You said you've been abstinent for three weeks. You said you've lost 20 pounds. You said you're eating really healthy. Well, you might want to ask yourself some questions like, did that work for you before? Did counting the number of weeks that you were abstinent ever work for you? Did losing 20 pounds, even quickly, did that work for you? Did that alleviate the obsession of the mind? And did eating healthy ever alleviate the obsession of the mind? Those things in and of themselves may be good experiences you're having in the moment. But that has to be married to the program of recovery, which is really acknowledging that we also have the obsession of the mind and that step work is required. So if there was, I mean, I, you know, I have no reason to doubt what you said about what your sponsor did with you. So if, in fact, you're telling us the truth about that experience, it sounds to me what happened was there was no marriage between the abstinence and the the obsession, you know, alleviating the, the allergy of the body and alleviating the obsession of the mind. Those things have to be married to each other. We can't do one without the other. We can't just be abstinent. That doesn't work for us. That's why we came to Overeaters Anonymous, because if we could just be abstinent, if that's all we had to do, we could have done that a long time ago. We don't need a program that contains 12 steps. It's going to give us a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. That's what they talk about in the, in the appendix, in the back of the book, Spiritual Experience. They talk about a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. So 
if you, you know, if you are so inclined to work with a sponsor, a recovered sponsor, and that person is doing their job, they are going to help you find the marriage between the abstinent food plan and the personality change that's brought about by working these steps. So I hope that answers your question, Jason. That's very helpful. I really appreciate it, Joe. Thank you, Jason, for the Jody? question. Thank you. I heard, thank you, Jason. I heard Jackie first. And Sarah Grace. Who's before Sarah Grace? Jody. Mm-hmm. Jody. Oh, okay. And then Susan. And, of course, uh, Joe. <laughs> what time do you want me to wrap up here? You can go as long as you want. Okay. So let's thank you, Joe, for your time. And let's. Let's go with Jackie first, please. Thanks. Uh, This is Jackie from West Virginia. My question is, in your uh, presentation, you said that your program became central. So how is it that you work everything around your program? And if you can give kind of details, because for me, everything seems kind of vague, and I need it to be more to the point, please, and thank you. Okay, so um, I'll just give you a couple of examples. This morning, I was making my abstinent breakfast, and I knew I needed to eat my abstinent breakfast before I called the Vision for You line at 7.30. So I looked at my food plan, and I saw that I had committed for my fruit my, my my fruit this morning, four ounces of pear. But I looked at my refrigerator and I didn't have enough pear. I had, you know, I had some pear, but I didn't have four ounces. So I was going to be talking to my sponsor at 7.15. So I held off eating that part of my breakfast. And when I was on the phone with my sponsor, I said, I need to make a food change for breakfast this morning. I don't have four ounces of pear what I would like to commit is four ounces of pear and grapes. And I didn't eat that until I committed that to her and got her okay. So that's a specific example. That's, that's, a, kind of, that's a granular example. I cannot afford to eat something that I did not commit until I recommit the food. That's how serious my addiction is. It, I have a real, I'm a really low-bottom compulsive overeater. I cannot handle that. So that would be an example. Um, another example, that's, so that's allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. I was in a work meeting this week, and someone said something to me, and I just looked at him and nodded because that's all that was required in that moment. I didn't have to try to argue or defend or justify anything. I used the, you know, step 11, we pause. What does step 11 say? What, what is one of the things it says? We pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. I paused in that moment. Just listen. Just listen to what he's saying. You know, and that's something that I'm really paying attention to right now in my work environment is listening. Um, uh, Being willing to stop and pay attention to the question that my boss is asking me and answering it the very best I can. That, so that's step 11. So that would be a, a specific example of engaging um, one of the steps. Does that answer your question, Jackie? 
Jackie, you'll need to press star one to unmute. Yes, it does, and thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Jackie, for the question. Let's move on to Jody now, please. Jody, you'll need to press star one to unmute. Um, hi, jo- hi, Joe. Thank you so much. I I want to ask you. I run into problems when I heard you say you only go to the store once a week, and you know at that trip to the store that you are getting your food for the whole week, and then do you come home and make it then? Because this is what becomes my problem. I come home, I've I've committed my food, and I'm making it, and either I don't have what I thought I was going to, and I heard you just say this, we've done that, you call your sponsor. But my question is, in your preparing, do you cook your food for the whole week? You know, I normally don't have to cook it for the whole week because, you know, some of what I eat, it doesn't have to be cooked. So I have, like, fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables. They don't have to be cooked. My fats also don't have to be cooked. Um, the things that have to be cooked, and my protein also does not have to be cooked because I don't eat animal products anymore. So I eat, like, beans, tofu, nuts. That doesn't have to be cooked. So the things that, you know, basically my starches that have to be cooked. You know, so I'll make a batch of rice. I'll make a batch of potatoes. Um, more for me, so I can do that during, you know, during the week. I mean, I can throw on a, you know, I can throw on a pot of rice um, in the evening, you know, on, on a work night. Um, that only takes like 20 minutes. Um, more for me, the issue is food preparation, like, you know, the cutting, the chopping, the cutting ahead of time. Because my work schedule, I mean, like, I, I really have to have that, you know, pretty well set before my work week starts because I just don't have time, um, you know, during the week. So I have to, you know, and, and I do do my, I mean, I do my bulk grocery shopping once a week, but every great once in a while I will have to stop in the middle of the week, excuse me, and get something if, if I'm low on it. Um, but I'm doing my main shopping once a week. So I do, like right now I've got, you know, I've got like, I've got uh, carrots and celery in my refrigerator and those have to be chopped up. I have a whole pineapple that has to be chopped up. Um, I need to um, open up the cans of beans and put those in a, in a container, put that in a refrigerator so that I have that available to make my individual portions of beans for my protein. So it's kind of, a, it's kind of been worked out. I've kind of worked out a rhythm over time that works for me. And you and anyone else who wants to become an abstinent, you know, you work out your own rhythm. There's no, there's no right or wrong. When it comes to food preparation, there's really, there's really working out a rhythm and a routine that supports your abstinence. Thank you, Jody, for your question. Do you eat eggs, too? I do not eat eggs uh, anymore. Um, I let go of all animal products about five months ago out of my food plan. That's just, that's just me. It's just a, a personal decision that I made for my own reasons. Um, it's not to say I would never eat an egg again or that I would never eat meat or, you know, it, it, like that again. It's just for right now, um, those are not in, those are not in my diet. And that's not, it, it was not a recovery decision. It was not, that was, it's not, there's not, how do I say this? It was not a decision that was based on an allergy of the body. I don't have an allergy of the body to animal products. I let go of those those items for other reasons. Thank you, Jody, for the question. Um, do you, Jody? Thank you. Uh, do you have another specific question that you'd like to ask? Okay, Jody, you can always come back around again. Let's move on to Sarah Grace, please. Sarah Grace, star one to unmute. 
Yes, I was unmuting. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you so very much, Joe. I have learned so much, and I do really love these Sunday um, specialty meetings um, as well as the other vision for you meetings. Um, I don't have a specific question except to, to acknowledge that I have learned a lot. Um, my question is, is it possible to call you? Because I have something on a more personal level that um, I think you would be a good person to discuss with that um, about and wondered if you were taking outreach calls. Oh, sure. Yeah, anybody can call me anytime. My phone number is 612-377-4502, and that's Central Time U.S. Okay, was that 4502? Yes. Okay, 612-377-4502. And when do you like your calls, Joe? You can call me anytime. I mean, I'm not home during, you know, when, uh, Monday through Friday, I'm not home from 8 to 6. So Monday through Friday, e- oh, evenings are best. And then you can call me anytime on the weekends. Great. Thank you, Joe, so much. Welcome. Thank you, Sarah Grace. Thank you, This Joe. is Cheryl. Cheryl, hold on. First, we're going to take Susan. And then we'll get to you, Cheryl. Susan, you'll need to press star one to unmute. Go ahead, Susan. Can you hear me now? Yes. Mm -hmm. I've been having such unmuting challenges on your meetings, Leah. Thank you so much, uh, both of you. Um, you, Joe, you brought up the concept of surrender and the level of surrender that you're that you're living in today and you also brought up the concept this is leading toward a question um, you 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 spoke of of having a very uh, defined abstinence I do too I'm very clear about my abstinence I'm very committed to it the question is this when you mention that you eat at specific times I have a history of of uh, trying to control my emotions with food. So let's say it's time for you, and, and I got the sense that you did too, though you didn't use that exact language. Let's say it's time for you to eat your meal, and you notice you're having a particular feeling. And if you're like me, you know that by eating, that feeling will be shifted, even with abstinent food. That's my experience. How do you work with that? Do you pause, as you just described? Do you make an outreach call before eating? I'm not talking about manipulating the time of your meal. I'm talking about it's time for you to eat. You're having a feeling. You know that eating that abstinent food will take the edge off, but that doesn't, you know, feel like the most surrendered act. How do you? How might you handle that? Thanks so much. Well, I don't have that experience today because my feelings are divorced from my plan of eating. My feelings have nothing to do with my plan of eating. I have a plan of eating. I have, a certain, I have certain types of food that I eat in certain amounts at certain times. When I say times, I mean I have time windows. So like in the morning, so for breakfast, um, you know, any time from the time I get up until 9.30, although I'm generally eating like between 6 and 7. Lunch is between 11.30 and 2. Dinner between 4.30 and 7. And then I have a metabolic. I have a little bit of food in the evening, usually between 8 and 10. It doesn't matter how I feel. My feelings don't play into it. That's my food. That's my mealtime. I eat it. I mean, that's my, that's my simple answer. And, and, and the, my feelings and my food are divorced from each other because of the program of recovery, because I've been alleviated of needing to medicate any feeling with food. I'm recovered. I don't have that. 
So I would say if you're having a feeling and you want to medicate it with food, even with abstinence food, even do your meal times, that's, that's a step issue. You know, what step are you on? One of two things are going on. You either have a resentment um, or you have some doubt or some, some anxiety of some kind, which is a step 11. If you have a resentment, then you need a, that's a step 10. You know, that's a four through nine. You can inventory your resentment, give it away, what is going on, you know, what is the character defect that is being triggered, do you own a to anybody? If you do not have a resentment and you have a doubt of some kind, an anxiety of some kind, but it hasn't gone down to a level of resentment, that's a step 11 issue. That is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And then it's time to go into the section on step 11 in the big book, which is from page 85 to 88. So I ho- does that answer your question? Um, I mean, I understand all that. I just feel that we never rise above being a human, and as a human, I have feelings even if I work the steps, and my experience still is that that food does take the edge off a little bit, even abstinent food at mealtime, and I don't know how to avoid that if it's my mealtime, and if I've, you know, done the work just as a human being, I might feel sad in a moment, you know, I, I'm human. I, well, I this is not about this is not about feelings and being human. This is about recovering from a condition of body and mind. That's what this is about. So it's this is not the the, the issue is not are you going to feel sad sometimes? That has nothing to do with this. The issue is if you want to medicate your sadness with food, that's what this has to do with. Are you trying to medicate that then you're not recovered. You're not a recovered compulsive overeater. No, I'm, I'm not recovered. I, I you need to work with it. I mean, I, I shouldn't say you need to, but an option for you, what I would recommend for you, is to work with a recovered sponsor who will help you get to the root of the spiritual malady that's going on here. Because, yes, I have felt sad. Of course I feel sad. Of course I feel, you know, you know maybe self-doubt. Or, of course, you know, I have, you know, maybe I feel lonely. Those are, those are feelings. I'm not trying to medicate that with food. That's the issue. And that's where you want to get to. I mean, I shouldn't say that's where you want to get to, but I'm assuming that you would like to be free of that compulsion. Is that right? Yeah, I guess I'm saying that it's, it just happens whether I want to or not. When I eat, I notice that the sadness dissipates. That's just an experience I have. That's probably why I'm here in the first place. Because, and there's significant you know, recovery has effect on me. There is significant recovery work for you to do, Susan, because... I don't doubt that. You have not gone through the transformative experience that is required to alleviate you of the obsession of wanting to medicate your feelings of food. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks for the valuable feedback. And, but I also want to tell you, it is possible to be alleviated of that obsession. That's what I want to tell you. I have experienced that. I experienced that today. Um, so... Lots of us have experienced that, and you can experience that, too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susan, for the question. Cheryl, it's your turn. Press star one to unmute. Hi, good morning. This is Cheryl. I do have a little bit of a cold, but thank you, um, Joe. I think you answered a little bit of my question. Um, I have a cold. I got sick. I'm trying to work through the steps with a step sponsor. Just started recently with a vision for you. I'm not recovered. But as soon as I got sick, the first thing I wanted to do was what would happen was the cravings started, the obsession started. Um, I didn't pick up um, any of my um, 
binge foods, thank you, God, but it was really, really, really uncomfortable and very, very sad and depressing. And um, so what I notice is that when I do get sick or something comes up in my life, um, I immediately turn to that wanting to eat and then also being sick. I have a cold. Um, it's getting better, but I didn't, and sometimes I didn't want to eat, so I ate what I could. Um, my food sponsor was very understanding. I did eat abstinent food, but I ate what I could. And I heard you say how you, you know, your food is like clockwork. You don't step outside your plan. So if you get sick and you don't have an appetite, do you force yourself to eat? Um, and then you talked about a marriage of, um, you know, eliminating the cravings and the obsession of the mind. And I'm not really sure. I guess I'm not there yet. And also the sponsor I have, she's just recently herself just started sponsoring in a vision for you. So I guess we're both still learning together. Um, so if you could help me with any of those issues that I brought up, that will be great, helpful. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing you talked about was being sick. Uh, thankfully, I don't get sick very often, but if I get sick to such a point where I don't think I can eat my, my food, I call my sponsor and say, I'm sick, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm nauseous, I don't think I can keep this down, can you help me work out an alternative meal? so that I can get, you know, abstinent food in me, some nourishment, um, while still staying within an abstinent plan of eating. And so I have had to do that, and sponsees have had to do that with me. It's about um, working out a, a, a workable way of eating so as not to exacerbate the sickness, so that's definitely, you know, that's definitely possible because, sure, things like this happen. You know, we're not healthy 100% of the time. But the question is, we can be, not the question, but the issue is, we can be abstinent 100% of the time. So I would throw that out to you. You know, when you're sick, work out an alternative abstinent meal plan with your sponsor. The second thing you said was that you're both, you know, you, you and your sponsor are both, are both still learning. I was taught when I first entered into the program of recovery, we can't teach what we don't know. We can't lead where we don't go. We can't give away what we do not experience. I need a sponsor who is recovered, who has followed this path and and continues to follow the path so that I can rely on her for sober guidance. And that's what I believe we all need. I think we all need a sponsor who has gone before us. I don't know that it's necessarily helpful to have a sponsor who is at the same place in their recovery as you are. Because how can they lead if they're at the same place? So that would be my response to that. Thank you, Cheryl, for the question. Who's next? Linda? Linda, your turn. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Linda. Thanks a lot, Joe, for all the explanations. I'm just uh, wondering if you had a sponsee that um, once you went through their trigger foods with them, 
um, and you did suggest a nutritionist for a food plan um, because that's how I have done it myself. Um, and they had already a food plan in place and seemed resistant to doing what you suggested. How would you uh, deal with that? Well, if they already have a food plan in place and it's a sober food plan. It is. And I mean, and it sounds like, you know, I mean, I've heard many, many food plans and I have a pretty good ear for if the food plan is going to be workable with the program and they already have that. Okay. I, yeah, it does sound like a good plan, but I just, um, because I always felt that I wasn't a professional and, and, and what you spoke about before, the volume of food, um, and, I, and I just wondered, um, you know, it, the volume of food, has that, does that have to be dealt with by an expert, or can she just come up with, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I I don't work with sponsees who wanted. I mean, I no, that's not part of the agreement that I have. I mean, with sponsees, they have to have defined uh, amounts of food if I'm going to work with them. And no, they can't decide that. I mean, you know, we're compulsive eaters. How can we possibly decide the amounts? We can't decide the amounts. I mean, that's why we're here. So uh, you know, we do need uh, consultation. Um, yeah. I believe um, with and, someone and, who. Know, it's knowledgeable. But I, I'm, I can't tell a sponsee, well, you should have a third of a cup of rice. How do I know? How do I know? I, you know, so I, I did not, I don't decide my own amounts of food. So right. I don't decide for a sponsee, and I don't believe she can decide for herself. Now, that's, that's me. That's how I work with people. You know, you might work out some other arrangement. I, I, think, the, I think the bottom line is, have we conceded, and that's the thing, have we conceded to our innermost selves that we are compulsive overeaters? Have we acknowledged the depth of our powerlessness? Because if we've acknowledged the depth of our powerlessness, then we are not going to try to exert control over our food plan. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, thanks a lot. That really helped me. Not going to try to manipulate a food plan if I've already, you know, if, if the delusion that I am like other people or presently maybe is being smashed, I'm not going to try to finagle, you know, a, a food plan that is not sober. Thank you, Linda, for the question. Marilyn, yeah, this is Cheryl, Cheryl again. Flory. Uh, Flory. I heard Marilyn. I heard Cheryl having another question. Who else would like to? Direct a question to Joe. Renata. Renata. Okay. Let's start with Marilyn, please. Okay. Um, Flori. Flori also, please. Okay. We'll get you two. Okay. So, Marilyn, go ahead, please. Just questions. Not a lot of commenting. Just to make the best use of our time. Thank you. I want to thank you very much for your qualification. And I'm new to Vision for You. And I'm hearing conflicting um stuff and um it it's a little bit confusing i came into vision for you to get the spirituality it's the spirituality that i am missing i've lost my faith and i'm just beginning to um hear a lot about the big book and <clears throat> what is spiritual today i heard 
mainly about the food, and I realize that you have to put the food down, and I've done that. Uh, so, And I realize that you have to go through the steps to get the spirituality. But I don't hear a lot of spirituality today. I hear a lot about food. It sounds like gracie to me. I hear a lot about food, and I want to hear more about the spirituality. Is that possible? Well, my response to that, Marilyn, is that I think that there are a lot of questions that come up in the broader fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous about the food because OA has not been clear about this, uh, about the allergy of the body that we have and how, and how highly essential it is to be abstinent. I think that OA has, well, I think OA has been remiss in that way. And so I think the message that we have an allergy of the body and that we do have to be completely abstinent um, can often be um, eclipsed by other messages. Um, and this has been my experience, you know, when I've, when I've gone to other meetings and, you know, given talks in Overeaters Anonymous, a lot of questions do come up about abstinence. Um, so that would be that would be the first part of my answer. The second part of my answer to you is that putting the food down is a spiritual act. My abstinence is a spiritual act. There is nothing that I do in this program that is not of a spiritual nature. So my food plan is part of the spiritual approach to recovery because it is an act of surrender. It's an act of willingness. And I apply spiritual disciplines in the execution of my food plan. I exert tremendous willingness. That's a spiritual quality in my food plan. When I am willing to carve out the time to go to the grocery store and do the food preparation, do the meal preparation, and write it out ahead of time and commit it ahead of time to my sponsor, that's willingness. It's humility. It's acceptance. You know, um, practicing perseverance. Like, no matter how many days I'm doing this, I keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Those are spiritual qualities. There is no spiritual part of the program. Everything about it is spiritual. That would be the second part of my answer. Um, does that answer your question? Um, not completely, but that's okay. Thank you. Okay. Well, let me just expand on that. I mean, maybe when you say spiritual, you're talking about the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, which is what they say. You know, I, I love that passage. Again, I, I, I made reference to it before. The, uh, the appendix in the back of, of the big book, Spiritual Experiences, says a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Because most of my days are not spent thinking about my food. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, I plan it and I eat it and I commit it ahead of time. Most of my day is spent in other activity, um, other mental activity and other physical activity. Um, Today, when I get off the phone with you, I've got to clean up my apartment to get it ready for my nephew coming over because I'm going to visit with my nephew today. I'm really looking forward to that. He's 16 years old, and I get to spend time with him, and I get to be, you know, I get to practice being an aunt um, who, who gives some time to him. I haven't seen him in a long time, and I'm looking forward to spending time with him. Um, you know, this week, I mean, I've got, you know, I'll be practicing a personality change when I meet with uh an internal client at work tomorrow who she can be kind of difficult 
And so there's an opportunity to practice a personality change because I'm learning in working with this client that, you know, she does not need me to weigh in on issues that she's already thought about and she already knows the answer to. She needs me to weigh in on areas that she doesn't know much about. And so I'm learning. I'm learning to work with this person. It's a new professional relationship. And that's what I realized last week. This is a new professional relationship. You know, I'm learning to work with her. And it's okay that I'm learning to work with her. It's okay that it's uncomfortable sometimes. Um, you know, the, the interactions, uh, you know, having to listen to the way that she talks is a little bit of a challenge for me. But it's okay. You know, it's okay that I recognize that there are certain qualities, there are certain professional qualities I have that are really well developed, and there are other professional qualities I have that are not as well developed, and they're not going to be well developed because they're not my strengths, and other people have those strengths. And just, you know, practicing these new areas of acceptance, you know, in my work life. Um, my work life is a great place to practice the program because. That's where I'm having all these interactions with other people all day long. And we all have, you know, we're all making our livelihood there. So there's a certain kind of intensity that goes along with that. And there are lots of different personalities. And I work for a very large, very complex organization. Um, and, you know, there are certain expectations that we have of each other. And there's, there are communication practices that I have to get better at. And I'm practicing that. Um, I'm practicing, you know, yesterday when I went um, with, to this movie with this group of friends and I, I practiced listening and I was really conscious of that yesterday. And I, you know, again, it was that, you know, pausing, pausing, you know, pausing and saying, okay, Joe, you're in a conversation with other people. Listen to what other people have to say. And it's okay that somebody else has a different view of the movie than you do. That really is okay. And it's okay to take it in and you don't have to, you know, you can say what you thought of the movie, and you don't have to say it more than once. And you don't have to dominate. You can be you can be one among many. And so I engaged that yesterday when I was with that group of people. Um, so that those are some examples, and maybe that's what you mean when you say the spirituality. Maybe you mean how do we move in the world? You know, how do we touch the lives of others in a positive way? That is that's really that is part of my daily experience. Um, so I don't know. Is that is that more of an answer to your question? That's fine. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Marilyn. Thank you. Welcome to a vision for you. And just you know, it might be uh, perhaps it's important to note that this morning's presentation was smashing the delusion, which primarily focuses. On step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable, and expounding on the twofold nature of our illness, allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. So thank you for your question. Thank Let's you. move on now. Thank you, Marilyn, and welcome. Let's move on now to Cheryl. Cheryl, you had another quick question. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, thank you. Yes, Cheryl, first of all, I wanted to say that I think I posed the question wrong because I do have a sponsor that is recovered. Um, what I was trying to say is that she she hasn't been recovered that long, and she is helping me. She does, She's doing a great job. I just was saying how she, she's just, you know, starting out as sponsoring uh, with me, and I'm starting out with her working the steps and just wondering, was that okay? The other thing is that um, um, 
I said how as soon as I got sick, the, the obsession and the craving started. Is that normal or is there something wrong with my food um, or is it just a trigger from me being sick? Thank you. Well, I have not heard that before, um, Cheryl. I mean, I haven't heard of people getting triggered by the sickness. Um, so I would say, you know, we're, again, work out your food plan with your sponsor. If you have an abstinent food plan you're already following, but you feel like you can't eat your abstinent food when you're sick, consult with your sponsor about what to eat. Um, and that working the steps will alleviate that obsession. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl, for the question. Thank you very much. And let's have a question. Renata, go ahead. Thank you. Hi, I'm Renata. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you, Joe, so much for your qualification. I've been away for over two years, and I was dieting with support group, and I lost 76 pounds and I've been maintaining my weight loss and normal body weight, but I didn't feel recovered. I didn't have the promises, and I always got stuck on my stats. And uh, I broke my abstinence a couple of months ago, and I decided to look for a sponsor that would take me through the big book. And I came across a sponsor from The Vision for You, and we started working through the big book maybe like a month ago. And it's been a great experience. And um, but I picked up again on Friday, uh, and I do have a higher power. And like you touched on, like the, the the complete surrender is to give up all the foods that cause us trouble. And I think I did that yesterday. I was on my knees, and I was crying, and giving everything up to God because, you know, I know there's certain foods I don't want to, I didn't want to give up. And I did, and I'm on a very, very, very restricted food plan now. That I not, I, only, sorry. sorry to interrupt. I'm just, in the interest of time, if you could just yeah, okay, pose your question, please. Thank my you. My question is, I'm working my steps. I know they're essential. Um my food's clean now. But, like, what did you do when you got really honest about your food and was working the steps, like, on a day that you still have cravings and food thoughts and you're obsessing about food because you're not yet recovered? What did you do not to pick up? Thank Thank you. you. Well, there are certain, you know, I think this is where the tools can come in handy. The tools are an extension of the steps. Uh, the tools are not separate from the steps. I think that's where, you know, I think OA has, you know, I, I think communicated a, a confusing message. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, like picking up the telephone in and of itself, it doesn't really mean anything. What we do is we pick up the telephone because that's an extension of our step work. So that that might be something you can consider if you have a list of recovered sponsors, recovered people. Um, and you're feeling like you know you're in the you're abstinent and you've you've begun your step work, but you're you're having a you know an, an obsession. You pick up the phone and call someone. In that moment, that can be useful. It's not a substitute 
for everything else you're going to have to do. But in that moment, um, that can be, you know, very useful. So that would be one recommendation um, I would have. Thank you, Renat, for your question. Let's move on to Flory. Flory, I believe, had a question. Star one to unmute. Hello, hello. Uh, yes, um, I want to thank you, Jill, for a wonderful share. I like it a lot. Um, I don't have a question. I just wanted to thank you and show my gratitude. Also, the time that the meeting is for you. Hi, this is Cheryl from North Carolina. Cheryl, go ahead with a question, please. My question is, is... I got muted. I was talking. Did anybody hear me? No, I'm sorry, Flory. Perhaps you uh, got muted or dropped off on the line. Go ahead. You had a question, Flory, before we move on to Cheryl. I I was just thanking for everything and also thanking of everybody on the vision for you because I never can go live on the meeting with you the recording and I was walking when you gave your phone number I will wonder if you can give it again yes it's 612-377-4502 let me repeat it 612-377-4502 correct and it's Jill right Joe J-O oh okay thank you so much Joe you're welcome. Thank you, Flory. Nice to hear your voice. Cheryl, thank you. Go ahead with your question, please. Cheryl, star one to unmute. This is Cheryl from North Carolina. My question is, is abstinence relative? Can you be more specific? I'm not sure what you mean. Well, I um, was introduced to OA in May of 2013, and the foods that I w- was eating at the time that made me feel depressed and stuck, most of them have been eliminated, the ice cream, the cake, stuff like that. I still like my salty stuff, though, but I don't eat I'm a vegan now. I gotten rid of meat. So a lot of things have changed. I've lost 40 pounds. I'm not as depressed, but I don't feel abstinent. So my current sponsor said, you're making progress. You're not doing what you were doing before. And I've been through all the steps. And I came from another fellowship, 18 years sobriety. So I don't know if I'm abstinent. Harlan said, is there sanity around your food? If there is, you're abstinent. That's my impression at what he said. I don't feel insane, but I don't feel like I have a clean food plan either, but I'm so much better than I was before. But someone told me I'm still not abstinent. So I'm not really sure which way to go with this. Am I abstinent? Am I not? I don't know. Mm-hmm. To me, Cheryl, there's no freedom in not knowing whether or not you're abstinent. That doesn't sound like freedom to me. The doctor's opinion in the big book says, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking alcohol without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy. It never occurs in the average temperate drinker. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Entire. That does not mean occasional abstinence. 
It does not mean temporary abstinence. You know, it doesn't mean I'm doing better than I was before. That's, that's not what the big book says. It says entire abstinence. It, it was never my experience that when I was in the same situation as you, I kind of was like vacillating. You know, well, it's better than it was before. I'm not binging. But if there's this uncertainty, there's this vagueness. Where is the freedom in that? I just did not find freedom in that. Because I was like teetering, like what's going to happen next is going to throw me off. What's going to happen next is going to tip me over and then push me back into the eating. So there's this niggling uncertainty all the time. I don't have that anymore. I don't have that niggling uncertainty. I have a sober food plan. I'm abstinent today. I'm completely abstinent. I'm not cured, but I'm abstinent. And knowing the certainty of my abstinence is tremendously freeing. And if you want that kind of freedom, Cheryl, you can have it. You're going to have to be willing to give up certain things apparently that you're eating now and certain things that you're doing now in order to have that freedom. Does that answer your question? Cheryl, star one to unmute. I have a question. Hold on one second. We're still dialoguing here with Cheryl. Cheryl, star one to unmute. Yes, I'm still here. Um, Joe answered my question. And okay, wonderful. Thank you. She just wanted to make sure that that was... Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Bye. Okay, adequate. Okay, very good. And now let's move. I believe Janice is next in line. Hi, this is Janice. How are you? Hi, Janice. Um, Go ahead with your question, please. Uh, Questions only, uh, please. Yes. All right. Um so, Joe, I think you just answered, but I just want to confirm. So I've been absent for 15 years. Um, I haven't been compulsively eating. But it kind of blew my mind when you were sharing with other people about, like, wanting to escape feelings with food and when someone shared about being sick and that triggering a desire for food. And I just wanted to clarify, are you saying that you no longer have that desire to escape feelings with food? Correct. And if I want that working the steps again would alleviate that. Yes, and, you know, when you say work the steps again, I mean, I, I'm working the steps all the time. I'm never not working the steps. I mean, if I stop working the steps, I'm in trouble mentally. I can tell you that right now. Um, so I'm living in steps 11 and 12 all the time. My every waking moment, my every waking moment needs to be in steps 11 and 12. It is not something I appropriate for a part of the day and then cast off to the side. I am, I am embedded inside the program 100% of the time. Um, and if I step away from that, which I have, because my self-will will come up and I'll like step away from it. Wow, I really feel it. I really feel the, gosh, it's just this feeling of aloneness and isolation and it's just, I, just this kind of cloud comes over my mind. Right. I know. If I'm thinking that way, that's a step 11 and 12 issue. I better get back into it. 
You know, yeah. I've got to be constantly exercising my mind. So this present is not about going through the steps you want. You know, I, that's a real flag to me. When I hear someone say, you didn't, you didn't say this, but what you said reminded me of this. It reminded me of when I hear people say, I went through the steps once. Well, maybe I need to go through the steps again. You know, that's like saying, I mean, for me, as a recovered combustible reader, that's like saying, well, I breathed one time. You know, maybe I'll breathe again. Yeah, you know, i got to be breathing all the time because, because of the nature of my condition. You know, I have a mind that's with me 24 hours a day. Therefore, I need a method that is going to address my mental condition 24 hours a day. And for me today, that's, that's steps 11 and 12. I know today our, our, our focus is on step one, and it began with step one, because if I don't do step one thoroughly, I have no incentive to do anything else in this program. Why would I do anything else in this program unless, unless that delusion that I am like other people or presently maybe is being smashed, unless I concede to my innermost self? I'm astounded that you've been abstinent for 15 years. I don't, I don't know how, how are you staying abstinent if you're not working the steps. I don't get that. I, that's not been my experience. I would not be able to do that. So that's a, I, think, I think you are definitely an anomaly in the program. You are definitely a minority in the program. Um, and being abstinent, and that's another thing, you know, that's, another, that's a flag for me too. When I hear someone say, I've been abstinent before, however long. That's a flag for me because that doesn't tell me that you've had a spiritual awakening. That doesn't tell me that you've had a personality change. It doesn't tell me that you've been rocketed into a first dimension of existence of which you had not even dreamed, as they talk about on page 25 in the big book. It just says, well, you have some container around your food. It doesn't tell me anything else about you. So I, I mean... I think the question for you is, are you free? How free are you? When you look around and you see recovered and hear recovered people, do they have something that you want? Do they have something more than what you have? And are you willing to go to any length to get it? In the big book it says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. So the question for you is, what do you want? And then you decide what you want, and then the next question is, and are you willing to go to any length to get it? You've got to answer those two questions. And they have to be answered in the affirmative before you're ready to take these steps. So before you even call a recovered sponsor and ask that person to sponsor you, if in fact that's what you plan to do, ask yourself those two questions. It really... I mean, being abstinent, is that all you're after? I mean, that's not what I'm after. Abstinence is never my goal, by the way. I want to be really clear about that. Abstinence, are you telling me that all I'm going to get from this program is being abstinent? You've got to be kidding me. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. If, that, if that's all that I get to have from this program is being abstinent, I'm walking out the door. I have no reason to come to a place like Overeaters Anonymous if all you're going to do is tell me that all I have to look forward to is abstinence. Ick. There's no message in that for me. I want what the big book talks about. You know, I want that transformation of thought and attitude. I want what the promises tell me. You know, in the middle of step nine, we will know a new feeling and a new happiness. 
That's what I want. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. That's what I want. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we'll see how our experience can be useful to others. I probably paraphrasing, but that's what I want. You know, an overwhelming consciousness of a power greater than myself that will carry me through my day. That's what I want. And that's what I have. I have that today. I'm recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I've been transformed. If you saw a movie of me in my former life and you saw a movie of me in my current life, you wouldn't know they were the same person. I'm not the same person. I don't live, I don't live the same life that I was living. And do I have struggles and challenges today? Sure I do. But they're nothing like they used to be. I've, I've had the personality change. I have been rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence. That's what this program offers that nobody else is offering. You can't go to a weight loss program that's going to give you this promise. You can't go the diet and pills and shots route and have them promise you this. That's the promise that we have. That's what I have. And that's what you can have. So I would encourage you in the strongest possible terms to move out of your abstinence and into recovery. Thank you, Janice, for the question. And anyone else with question with a question? Mary Lou in California. Mary, Mary Lou in California. Okay, Mary Lou, just a question, yes, please. Uh, Thank you very much. In the interest of time. Okay. And um, I have a question. Is, it, is it possible? Oh, oh, I I think I heard Steve. Is that correct? Is that you, Steve? I think it was Steve. Okay, so Mary Lou, and then we'll get Hi. to Steve. Sorry okay. about that. Hi. Uh, well, that's okay. Mary Lou, I'm recovered in California, and uh, glory, glory, hallelujah. Thank you, God. Um, thank you, Joe, for your story. You, you helped me along the way early on when I came in. And my question is, can the, is, there, is there a way to recover, because this is my experience right now, um, through uh, my sponsor wouldn't take my food. He said it would be like reporting taking a pist, and that was my spiritual awakening in this program because I come from 15 years of black and white, weight and measured, gray sheet guilt, fear on food. Since I've recovered, I have serenity and peace around the food, and I moderate meal, and moderate meal, and I'm losing seven pounds a month, uh, seven, eight, five sometimes. Anyway, I have serenity around the food. I am recovered. It's taken. Uh, so my question is. Is it possible to recover? I do not report my food, and I'm not dishonest about my food. I know I binge items are. I believe in the doctor's opinion. I breathe the doctor's opinion. I don't prepare my food ahead of time. I just make sure it's in the fridge. I have, uh, I'm not cocky or afraid. I'm not cocky or afraid of the food. I am so joyful. And I just wanted to ask you, is it possible to be recovered through moderate kneeling. I think it's food plan one on dignity of choice. That's my question. Thank you. Well, I think it's an interesting question, Mary Lou, because you said that you're recovered. I am recovered, yes. You said that you're recovered, and you said that you're moderate kneeling it. So it doesn't seem like it's a question. You're experiencing something. No, I'm not asking you in your opinion. But it's not, it's not about opinion. This is about experience. You are experiencing being recovered and one of the things you're doing is moderate mealing it. That's your experience. 
So yeah. anybody's, nobody's opinion means anything. What matters is your experience. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the question. Again, the litmus test for are we recovered is, has the obsession of the mind been expelled? Has mm-hmm. it been driven out? Mm-hmm. So it's a personal personal experience. And I also, I think I, think I would add um, to this that, I mean, you know, you said a couple of things. You said you're losing seven pounds a month. I, I don't know. That's not, you know, saying that you're losing seven pounds a month does not sound different to me than someone who's on a diet. Oh, you know, all you're saying is that for right now, you know, no. you're eating in such a way as that you're losing weight. But losing seven pounds a month is not what the program of recovery has to offer. That's not, that's not what we're promised. Um, we're promised an alleviation of the obsession of the mind. So if you are relying on the fact that you're losing seven pounds a month, you're setting yourself up for a fall. So I just want to put that out there for you. Anytime I hear someone say, I'm losing such and such amount of weight in such and such a time, that that never worked. If you're a compulsive overeater, that work for us. So moderate mealing may be just fine for you, but I would caution you uh, against latching on to weight loss success as if weight loss success is the program of recovery. Weight loss in the program of recovery is the result of uh, the delusion being smashed and conceding yeah. our powerlessness and then from there, we follow a silver food plan and we do the steps and we're alleviated of the allergy of the body and the session of the mind, and then weight loss is the result of that. Oh, yes, I'm alleviated and I'm really joyful. I was just qualifying with the number, but you know, I totally don't care about the number, actually, and I don't even care about what I'm going to eat today too much. I'm not obsessed with it, nor am I rigid about it. I just don't eat, I don't pick up no matter what, but I don't weigh and measure, and I'm really grateful for that. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Mary Lou. And, of course, it's the step process, specifically steps four through nine, that allow for that transformation that has a very specific result, and that is a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, and that will be manifested by the the, uh, driving out of the obsession of the mind. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent, Mary Lou. Thank you very much. And Steve, thanks for your patience. If you're still there, star one to unmute. Hi there, this is Steve. Thank you for your sharing. Uh, I was reading a book by this guy named Bill D. And it brought up a question in that he was saying that he didn't believe in perfect abstinence, which would mean never overeating, never eating too fast. And he was saying that sometimes he does, and then it means that he has a spiritual, he hasn't, he's lost his spiritual fitness, so he gets back on it. My question is, in your experience, or in my expectation, is there such a thing as perfection in eating behavior in particular? And does that not set me up for uh, disappointment or just, his statement sounded good to me because uh, sometimes it seems perfection in in the. Uh, do you understand my question? Is there any? He was saying that there's no such thing as. Perf- sometimes he will 
eat too fast, for example, or eat, uh, he'll get off the track a little bit, but then he'll get, that, that tells him to get back with the steps. So my question is, is there such a thing as perfect, uh, perfect perfection in eating behaviors? Thank you. The word perfection and the word perfect and those concepts have no place in the program of recovery. They are counterproductive to what we do. They set us up either for failure or they serve as justification for us to manipulate the program. One of the two things. Either way, they are not helpful to us. If I go to the doctor and I have a set of symptoms and the doctor says, you have diabetes and you have to shoot up insulin four times a day. And if you're going to arrest your uh, diabetes, you have to shoot it up. Here's what you have to do. Here's the amount. Here's the times a day. And here's what you do. And I do that because I want my uh, diabetes to be arrested. It can, am I being accused of trying to be perfect? Or am I simply following a diagnosis because I have a severe condition that warrants that kind of treatment? So it, it's just not about bringing in the words perfect and perfection are not helpful. Um, my abstinence is fully accountable. I do what I say I'm going to do. I make a commitment what I'm going to eat and how much and when. And I follow that. And if something happens that requires me to fear off of that, I call someone. That has, the word perfect is not in there. It's, it's accountable, it's about being precise, and it's about being accountable. It's about being honest. I hope that answered your question. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. And anyone else before we wrap up here? Your name? Hello? Yes. Yes, uh, I'm Luann, and I have a question. Luann, go ahead with a question, please. Well, I uh, would like to know what was the most... I had to... I uh, got loud here a bit, so I had to jump off, and I jumped on. So I'll I'll listen again if it's uh, repetitive. But uh, I'd like to know what was the most important uh, tool or um, aspect of... I'm kind of in, like, 6 and 7 right now that I'm very... Com- I've got a lot of questions regarding how to initiate the food... Um, Boundaries, I guess, is the best way to put it. But um, I'm looking for some helpful starter hints, I guess. Is that okay to ask? Are you? Do you mean you're looking for starter hints with your food plan? Well, yeah. How to? Because um, uh, my sponsor is one like someone already mentioned that she really doesn't want to discuss too much regarding the food. That will come after I get a little bit further along. I heard someone mention between steps four and nine. I'm really trying to do a lot of figuring out right now, and I feel as though I should be a little bit more involved with planning the food uh, more appropriately, but I'm not sure. So what kind of, um, when you first started, when you are in these steps, you know, four through nine, what helped you to... um, with the guidelines on food consumption. I mean, if I could quit, I think I'd do great. I quit smoking by the grace of God years ago, and I I truly agree it was the grace of his helping. And uh, 
I just wish um, I could quit, but that's not obviously not going to happen. So I understand you have to quit the compulsive overeating, and that's what I'm looking for. And I understand it's His grace that I'm truly looking for the spiritual awakening. Luann, thank you. Is that... <laughs> You're welcome. Just thank trying you to get for... you to... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, go ahead. Well, I would say if you are not abstinent, then I would recommend that you get in touch with a recovered sponsor and ask that person for some guidance in how to construct an abstinent food plan. And, you know, you might have to go through your food history and, you know, identify your trigger foods before you can, you know, fully flesh out. I think any of us have to do that. We have to identify what our trigger foods are. If if one of our trigger foods is volume, we, you know, we need to identify that. And we need to work out a sober food plan as the first action after conceding defeat. You know, we concede defeat and we admit our powerlessness and now we're ready to surrender ourselves to a sober plan. Um, so it sounds to me like that's probably your first order of business because if you're not abstinent, you're not at step four. You cannot be doing an inventory unless you're abstinent. You, you're not in step six and seven if you're not abstinent. The steps don't mean anything unless you're first out of the food because the food is covering over the spiritual problem and you can't really get access to it then for the steps to have any effect on it. So I would suggest that you back out of this supposed step work that you think you're trying to do and go back and get the food plan. You, you need to get your abstinence on track first. And then in the abstinence state, you are now made fully conscious of your need for the steps. The steps are not there as a nice set of ideas. They are there to be taken by desperate people who have nowhere else to go. And I had nowhere else to go because I was in the fully abstinent state. Now what am I going to do? Because just trying to hang on to being abstinent in and of itself, even if it's a spiritual action, that doesn't work for me. So that's what I would recommend to you. Thank you, Luann, for the question. And thank you to everyone for your questions this morning. Mary Lee and Liz, Ellen, Carolyn, Tippy, Devorlea, Jason, Jackie, Jody, Sarah Grace, Susan, Cheryl, Linda, Marilyn, Flory, Renata, Cheryl, Janice, Mary Lou, Steve, and Luann. We thank you for your questions this morning. Of course, thank you, Joe, for such a revealing study of Step 1. Allergy of the body, obsession of the mind, smashing the delusion. We thank you for your experience, strength, and hope this morning. It was a very potent message. And I'm going to close a vision for you meeting this morning the way we always close, and that's from the reading on page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. 
but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.